All right, 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. Well, we saw last week that uh, God had completely rejected Saul's leadership, and he sent Samuel to anoint David to be his replacement. Uh, but Saul has no in, uh, uh, intention of abdicating the throne. You know, there's, there's not going to be this, uh, oh, okay, God's done with me being a leader, so I'll step down. And, and that leaves, you know, Israel in, in kind of a, a spiritual lame duck situation. You know, he's still king, uh, but it's not the king that God wants. And so this not only leaves the nation of Israel in a kind of a, a lame situation, but it, it leaves Saul in a bad situation. Because leading a nation is not easy, and, and doing it on your own only makes it harder. So facing these challenges on his own leaves Saul with a, a deeply troubled heart. And we're going to look at that tonight, and, and hopefully we can see how we can avoid that in our own lives. So chapter 16, and we begin in verse 14. It says, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said unto him, behold now, an evil spirit from God troubles you. Let our Lord now command your servants, which are before you, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit uh, from God is upon you, that he shall play with his hand, and you shall be well. And Saul said unto his servants, provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. So we see here that Saul's troubles start immediately when God puts his spirit upon David. He'd already removed it from Saul. He puts it upon David. And so in verse 14, it reminds us, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And the word departed there, it's the same word or phrase that's used to describe what Saul did with the Lord, where the Lord said in chapter, I think it's 15 verse... 10, where the Lord tells Samuel, for he has turned back from following me. It means to turn aside and go a different direction. So it's not like the Holy Spirit just disappeared. It just, Saul was going a direction that the Holy Spirit could no longer go. And so the Holy Spirit has to turn and, and, and stop, you know, uh, going the same direction Saul's going. You know, the Holy Spirit did this because Saul refused to repent. You know, God is so incredibly gracious with us, and I'm so glad for His patience with me in the times when I was being stubborn and disobedient. But there does come a point when God's Spirit will no longer strive with a person. God said that way back in Genesis to Noah, when years and years and years of violence and, and wickedness and immorality, and the Lord finally said, listen, my Spirit's not always going to strive with man. And there's coming a point soon in a hundred years, if things don't change, that judgment's coming. And so that's, of course, what happened when, you know, no one, nothing changed. And so God brought judgment. You know, people will often ask me, why, why does God allow leaders, you know, who, who have these private, wicked lives, why does he allow them to have a positive influence? You know, we have, we have seen individuals recently, you know, who have been exposed, uh, who seem to be having a positive influence on people's lives for the Lord. Why does God allow that when there's this personal wickedness going on in their private lives? Well, it's the same reason that he gave that, the woman Jezebel from the church of Thyatira time to repent. God doesn't want to, anyone to perish. He doesn't want to expose our sin. You know, it's not like God's just waiting for us to blow it so he can shine it all for everybody to see. That's not God's heart. You know, he wants to wash us clean. He wants to change us. He wants us to come to him, you know, for help in our time of need. But 
if we continually fight against that grace and that patience of the Lord, if we continually fight against the Lord's correction and refuse to bow our head instead of stiffening our neck, well, there comes a point when God finally deals with our sin. In Proverbs 29 verse 1, it it has a a heavy statement that, you know, it says about, about that stubbornness. In Proverbs 29.1, it says this. It says, he that being often reproved and hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That's why these things all of a sudden just happen. They come out, and you're like, what? It's because God is, has to deal with it now. He didn't want to deal with it in that way, but now he has to. Despite Saul's stubborn disobedience over and over again, well, God's Spirit continued to help him rule to be a good king. But Saul repeatedly told God's Spirit no by ignoring every time Samuel came to him to correct him, and Saul just kept saying no, 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 no. And so Saul has finally hit that point where God's no longer going to let his supernatural power rest upon him. He's going to say, Saul, you're on your own. And when the Lord lifts his hand off a person like that, it exposes that person to the enemy. And so we see that as the Spirit can no longer follow Saul, it says an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, we read that, and of course, that creates some consternation and difficulty internally. But you mean an evil spirit from the Lord? That sounds awful. What does it mean an evil spirit from the Lord troubled Saul? Well, this word in the Hebrew, from, uh, can be a marker identifying First off, the initiator of an event or an activity. That's the way we normally understand from. So it can be used that way. But it can also be a marker identifying why an event or an activity happened, which is how we would normally use the word because. And so what we would say here is more appropriate since other Scripture declares that God is not the author of evil. For example, and there's numerous places, but you know the most obvious one is in James chapter 1 where James just clearly comes out and tells us in verse uh, 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It explains in verse 17 that every, if something that comes from God is his every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and it comes down from the Father of lights, and, and he doesn't alter that. He's, he says, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God, God does not have an alternate personality that takes over if we upset him too much, you know? He is who he is, and he's faithful to it to the very end. So since we have other scriptures that declare that God is not the author of evil, then it must mean the other one. It must mean because. In other words, because the Lord took his favor and protection from Saul, well, the enemy was free to attack. And that's what happened. It says this evil spirit, because of the Lord, because of what the Lord did by removing his spirit from Saul, it says that this evil spirit troubled Saul. The word troubled there is not just the idea of causing trouble, but it it means to terrify, to cause great fear. Now, 1 John 4.18 tells us that fear is like torture. It clouds our our understanding of God's love, and it it torments us by telling us this is what you have to do rather than allowing us to rest in the Lord. Fear says you got to do something. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And that's torturous, especially if you're in a situation where you go, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I, ha- I have a piece of advice for you. It's a piece of advice that has kept me out of a ton of trouble over the course of my life. If you don't know what to do, don't do anything. And don't stress out about it either. Because he knows what to do. 
You know, when I'm stressed out, it's because I'm going, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? If I do this, this might happen. If I do this, this might happen. And God, what do you want me to do? Silence. And you're like, <laughs> but that's what, that's fear that's motivating that. That's not God's silence that's doing that. It's okay for God to be silent. It's okay to wait on the Lord. We read about that in our scripture reading in Psalm 37. It's okay to just rest in him. I wonder how many nights David, we're going to read about it later on, when Saul's chasing him all around Israel trying to kill him, I wonder how many nights he went to bed and said, Lord, could this be the last night I'm running for my life? Silence. And yet David said, I laid me down to sleep because I trusted the Lord. that he, he had me in the palm of his hand. I don't know what to do. Okay, then just rest in the Lord. Don't do anything. And I've had people who have been really nervous when I've had that reaction. What are we going to do? I said, we're doing nothing right now. What do you mean we're doing nothing? we got to do something. No, we do not. We're going to wait on the Lord, and we're going to do nothing. I'm uncomfortable with that. That's okay. That's okay. Just lay that uncomfortableness at the Lord's feet, because he's not. He's perfectly in rest, knows exactly what he's going to do. So this fear, this this, this terrifying feeling that this spirit was bringing upon him, this demon was bringing upon him, was torturing Saul. And you know, that's what you trade for when you, when you decide to reject God's word. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, and he'll what? You know, he'll direct your paths or literally make your path straight. You know, I, uh, you know, I'm thankful for the, you know, when you punch in and, you know, say, hey, send me to the, this place. And I'm extremely thankful for, for that, you know, these tools that say, you know, turn right and, you know, 2,000 feet or, you know, turn right at the next exit. And I, it's really cool. I've got this little phone that, like, beeps at me, a little phone, this little watch here that beeps at me, you know, while I'm driving. I don't have to look at anything. You know, it just beeps at me, and I know I'm supposed to do something soon. But have you ever had one of those times when it's confused? Like, you know, like it's, it's telling you to go somewhere, and then you do it, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, rerouting. And you're like, what do you mean rerouting? I did what you told me to do. It's in incredibly unnerving because now the path's no longer straight. In fact, now you're driving, you go, I don't know where I'm going. Trusting in the Lord will never be like that. Even if you don't get the update saying, turn left in four days. It's okay because you're never going to get to a place where you turn left and all of a sudden the Lord's like rerouting, rerouting, you know, you know, that was a mistake. Like, what do you mean it's a mistake? This is where you told me to go. No, God doesn't make mistakes. He makes our path straight. What is the scripture in, I think it's Isaiah 40, you know, the famous song, very classical song, every valley, you know, shall be exalted, every hill, mountain will be made low. God's able to do that. And so it's much better to not trade that for my own way of doing things. And you know, everything that Saul's going through here is exactly why David prayed what he did when he was in a similar situation. Remember when David resisted the Lord for, for a, almost a whole year in his, you know, when he committed adultery, Bathsheba, he murdered you know, her husband, his friend Uriah, and, and he, didn't, he didn't want that to be known. He was covering it up and he resisted the Lord for like a whole year. And David talks about what that felt like in a couple of his, his psalms, his, his psalms of repentance and confession where he says, man, I felt like, felt like you know, I was pressed out like water, <laughs> like the Lord was just, his heavy hand was upon me. But when it comes out, when uh, the prophet, uh, thank you, yeah. Um, anyway, when the prophet confronted him, he, David was like, oh, 
Lord, no, 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 I don't want to go the way Saul went. And so in Psalm 51, that great psalm of repentance and confession uh, that David wrote uh, right after that, uh, that exposure, David says these very famous words, create in me a clean heart. This is Psalm 51, 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he'd seen that happen to Saul. He'd seen it happen to a man he loved. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but instead restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. The word there, free, it means generous. That the giving spirit, the one who is constantly supplying need, our need, you know? David was in Saul's shoes. He had, he had gone the route that Saul had gone, but he came to a place when it was exposed where he said, no, 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 no. I don't want to trade all that in for my way. Please don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. He wanted the joy of, sal- of his salvation and then the freedom that comes with that. And so he said, Lord, I don't want to go that route. And he confessed and he repented. Now, as Christians, we're in a, a, certainly a different situation than Saul and David were in. We, we have more than just an anointing from the Holy Spirit. He lives in our hearts. He takes up permanent residence. And so we never need to fear God taking his spirit from us because we blow it or even because we harden our hearts. But that privilege that we have, that, that better standing in that sense because of what Christ has done on the cross, that privilege should never be used as a license to grieve God's spirit or to quench God's spirit, but rather we should use that privilege to glorify God, knowing that what a blessing to know that even when I blow it, that I don't have to fear that. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or chapter 6, it talks about the beautiful privilege of having the Holy Spirit when he's dealing with some of the sexual immorality that was going on in their church. And he says, do you not know that the, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and that you're not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the idea is, you know, we have this tremendous privilege. It should never be a license, you know, to grieve God's spirit, but it should be motivation to go, wow, Lord, you're never going to leave me? I want to glorify you. You know, when I blow it, I want to make things right, right? Well, Saul was already a paranoid person uh, after almost losing his kingdom to the Philistines. So this supernatural terror, this attack, you know, made it way worse. And so uh, in verse 15, Saul's servants, the word their servants means royal officials. Um, Saul's situation is way different than when he first became king. When we first saw him as king, he was out with the cattle and the tribes were all fragmented. But now he has his own officials who help him govern a very united nation. And so uh, Saul's servants says, say unto him, we need to do something about this. Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubles you. These guys are astute enough to recognize that God has removed his hand from Saul. However, good friends, good co-workers, good counselors, when they see that, that, that you know, God's favor is not on you for something because you're not walking with them, you know, they don't bring about their own solution to the problem. They tell you to repent and make things right with God. They don't try to put a Band-Aid on your sin. And so verse 16 and 17, we see their advice here. It's, it's not good. Let our Lord now command your servants, which are before you, to seek out a man. We're, we're, we work here every day, but, you know, command, the word command there means to give an official order. And, and what's funny is, let our Lord now, the word now there is a very light translation in our English. It means, please, we beg you. I mean, this is, 
life stinks. I mean, if Saul's chucking spears at David later on, I can only imagine what was going on here. So these guys were on edge. They're like, please, you know, don't keep us here. Send us out, you know. Give a, an official order that gives us the authority to leave and go search out, it says, a man who is a cunning player on the harp, knowledgeable and skilled, you know, on the, on the guitar. The word there for harp is the same word that uh, we used in this morning's uh, teaching from Revelation 5 where, you know, it's that kind of that handheld harp that they'd use a pick for. Uh, so it's a, a kind of like a small guitar. So go find a, a guy who can use a, this, this small guitar and, and, and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God's upon you, here's our solution, he shall play with his hand and you shall be well. The word there well means joyful, pleased, good. Master, you've not been good lately. This will make you good again. In other words, instead of repenting, let's find a substitute for the joy of your salvation that you're lacking. Listen, anytime you got an area of disobedience in your life, and instead of someone advising you to repent, that they advise you to find a different thing or a substitute for the joy of your salvation, do not listen to that advice. Like Saul, it may soothe you for a bit. You might even have moments of happiness, but it will not fix the problem. Well, Saul says unto his servants, provide me now. He doesn't listen, you know, to the Lord. He doesn't repent. He listens to their counsel. Provide me now a man that can play well. That sounds like great. Get me a guy, you know, get me a good guitar player and bring him to me. Now, some time passes between verses 17 and 18. We don't know how long, but the search turns up a very interesting prospect, a young man named David. In verse 18, it says, then answered one of his servants. This is a different word for servant. Here it means a lower class official, a youthful official. This was a young guy just kind of getting his foot in the door uh, in Saul's court. And he says to Saul, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing. He, he meets your requirements, but he's, he's got so much more going for him. He's also, it says, a mighty, valiant man. It means he is physically strong and very capable. He is, a, he is a physically strong man and a very capable man. He is also, it says here, a man of war. It means a soldier or a warrior. Now, David's not a soldier in the Israeli army yet. We're going to see that later on in chapter 16. But chapter 16 will also explain why this official had this opinion of David, because David, he had had a pretty interesting life as a shepherd with many warrior-like deeds that he's going to explain to Saul why he's qualified to go fight Goliath, you know? So he says, yeah, I heard the stories that David told me, and, and he's a man of war. He's prudent in matters. That means he speaks well and not out of place. You know, some people speak well, but their timing is awful, or their awareness of the setting they're in lacks wisdom, right? You know, they're good speakers, and they say stuff, and you're like, oh, you didn't just say that out loud, did you? And then there are others who can read a situation really well, but they don't know what to say or do. Well, David, he was strong in both areas. This kid's a smart kid, you know? He knows how to speak well, and he knows when to shut up. He knows, he knows the right time to speak. In addition to that, He's handsome. He's a comely person. It means good looking. And then ultimately this guy says, and the Lord is with him, which is truthfully the only thing that can actually help Saul. The Lord is with him. 
And so, wherefore, you know, I, I like this guy. This young, I don't know who he is, he's, but he's not one of the bigwigs, bigwigs who suggested this idea to Saul. Those who suggested this plan to Saul, they were looking for someone that fit their idea of a solution. But this guy was open to someone who followed the Lord. And, and, and so, what's so cool about this is we see the hand of God working despite the plans of man, right? Saul's saying, I'm not moving. These guys are saying, it's okay, you don't need to repent. We'll find a substitute for the joy of your salvation. And God's going, try as you want. I'm still gonna do my thing. And so David, the very man that Samuel anointed, that God picked to be Saul's successor, is the one chosen by this younger guy, this younger guy who was open to someone who, you know, the Lord was with him. And so, verse 19, wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, send me David your son, which is with the sheep. And so Jesse took a donkey. Apparently, you know, he'd asked, well, how do you know he's a man of war? He sounds like he's, he's not one of my soldiers. And the guy explained, was a shepherd. And let me tell you some stories. But Saul said to Jesse, send me to your David your son, which is with the sheep. And so Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid, a goat, and sent them by David his son unto Saul. And so David, it says, came to Saul and stood before him, and he, Saul, loved him, David, greatly. And he, David, became his armor bearer. So Jesse, David's dad, sends David to Saul. He answers the summons, but he sends him with a gift. And that's to show his favorable response to Saul. I'm, I'm good with this. This is a great idea. This goes with my blessing. He's not just saying, okay, you can have him. You're the king, and I can't do anything to stop it. He's, he's saying, I'm, I'm okay with this. This is, a, this is a blessing on our family. Go ahead and let David be a blessing to you. And so when David comes to Saul, it says, and he stood before him to pr- present himself to, to Saul, likely playing his harp uh, to see if he passed the test. Uh, it says that through that process, Saul came to love David greatly. Now, this is not the word um, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, chesed, which refers to God's loyal love, you know, his, his unwavering devotion. It's not that kind of love. It's not, it's not like the New Testament word for agape. Um, this is more like the New Testament word phileo, which refers to friendship or brotherly love. Uh, Saul really, really, really liked David, and he grew to trust him, so much so that he becomes Saul's administrative assistant. Saul asked him to become his armor bearer. I want you to, I want you to file my paperwork and be by my side. I want you to be my assistant. So, so he really, really liked David and grew to trust him and put him in this very privileged position, this very trusted position. Now, of course, that wasn't the original pitch to David's dad, so Saul then sends a request to Jesse for David to stay as a permanent, permanent fixture in his court. So verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David, I pray you, stand before me. You know, the idea here is of permanence, not just a temporary thing, but I want him in my court. Uh, for he has found favor in my sight. I like him a lot. And it came to pass that when, and of course Jesse says yes, it doesn't tell us that here, but he has to because David stays. For it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. The word there, refreshed, it's an interesting word. It means to feel relieved, to feel like you're in a wide open space. And then, of course, his, he had some joy. He, he, he was pleased. He was doing better. Now, fear, of course, 
makes us feel cornered, right? I mean, that's the very opposite of feeling in a wide open space. It feels like the walls are closing in, you know? It feels like, it makes us feel cornered. It makes us feel like we have little or no options. And that often produces panic and, and anxiety, kind of like an emotional claustrophobia. You know, you ever been in a place where you're just like, oh, I can't, feel like I can't breathe. You know, well, this is kind of like an emotional, I can't breathe, you know? And so this, this idea here is this fear that was, was squeezing Saul and making him feel like he was in a tight place. I, I don't know what that was exactly. I mean, was the evil spirit triggering a, a panic attack or extreme paranoia like we see later on in, in Saul's life? That's certainly possible. But whatever this demonic force did, it affected you know, Saul's behavior so much that his officials stepped in and said, we got to do something about this. So, I mean, whatever it was, it caused Saul to feel like he was in this tight place and he had no options and, and he would lash out. And so, this was a solution. It made him feel like he was in a wide space again and allowed him to be different you know, as a king from his, you know, his demeanor. So the question is, well, if God's not with Saul anymore, why does the demon leave when David plays the harp? Well, well music can be soothing, and, and there have been those moments when songs have been very special to me in, in my own life when I was struggling. I think it has less to do with music and a lot more to do with the Lord being with David, because that's what Saul was missing, was the Lord's presence. That's what was gone. So with David there, and the Lord's with David, the anointing of the spirits upon David, I don't think the demon felt very comfortable hanging around. And as a result, Saul had a sense of that again, that peace, that wide open space, even though the Lord was not with him because the Lord was with David. You know, the demon came because God's spirit left, and we know from verse 13 that God's put his spirit upon David. I think that's interesting because if we all have God's Spirit, then that means that we can have a profound impact upon the people around us, doesn't it? You know, one of the ways that we can impact tormented people around us, struggling people around us, is by just allowing God's presence to shine through us so it can touch them. Now, that's easier said than done. <laughs> I understand that. I've had my own experiences with tormented individuals, and it is not easy. You know, sometimes you, know, you think, well, I'll try to reason with them. Well, that, it's very difficult to reason with tormented people, you know. Um, if that was the case, it was easy to just reason with them. They'd reason with them themselves, you know. And so frequently when we see something like this, well, we think, well, the solution's right here, you know. And, and then we point out the solution, and that only frustrates them more. So, you know, I, I think it's not that we don't use words or we don't take actions that, that minister to people. Certainly we do that. But I'll put it this way. While winning an argument or even changing someone's intellectual viewpoint about a situation or about God even, while you might succeed at doing that, it doesn't necessarily win a soul. It doesn't necessarily save a soul. But when others see the Lord working in our lives, and that supernatural thing that's going on inside of us kind of reaches out and spills over and touches them. Well, it's kind of hard to argue with that. <laughs> and ultimately, I think that gives God's Spirit a lot of room to minister to them in ways that maybe our words are a little bit more restricted. Now, before we move on to chapter 16, because Saul's not out of the woods yet, he's going to find some new troubles in chapter 17. 
Before we move on, I'm sorry, to chapter, not chapter 16, we move on to chapter 17. We do need to take, talk about David and all this because we don't see any of his perspective in, in this situation. However, even though we don't get his perspective, we know, we already know that he knows he's Saul's replacement, right? We already know that he knows that. I'll be honest with you. If one of Saul's royal officials came snooping around my home looking for volunteers, I'd be going in the other direction. Because I would know that if Saul finds out who I am and what, what Samuel's anointed me to be, he's going to kill me. I mean, he, he's not left the throne. He's not cool with this whole change. You know, it's not like I could show up and be like, hey, buddy, I'm your replacement, you know, like two days ago. But you're kind of haven't moved yet. So, you know, I hope we can get along for a little bit there. That's not how I'd be thinking this thing through. And yet, David goes and he serves this tormented man. David. <laughs> there are some things, that, some things that David does and you're just like, what are you doing, David? And I don't relate at all. And then there are other things that he does that I, I don't relate at all. And that's not a good thing. David later on comes to love Saul deeply. I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> I need to get there. But that blows me away. You know, if Saul has a troubled heart, I would describe David as a man who had a simple heart. A very, very simple heart. You know, in Acts 2.46, it talks about the early church and why they had such an impact upon the community around them. And it says that they, well, let me read it to you. In Acts 2.46, it talks about a lot of things, but one of the things it mentions about them that has always kind of interested me, it says, and they continually daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their food with gladness and King James says singleness of heart, but it means simplicity of heart. They had simple hearts. It wasn't complicated, you know? And, and you know, Paul said the same thing in Galatians chapter two, one of my favorite sections of scripture. I, I return to this scripture so often. But he says, listen, if for, he says, um, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But this is the part that I always think is interesting. I do not frustrate the grace of God. It's like Paul saying, this is not rocket science, all right? And that's kind of what he's saying there. This is not complicated, all right? The Christianity is not complicated. It's not complex. Love Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus. That's it. <laughs> it's not compl complicated. If he says it, do it. You know? What he did for you, accept it. You know? He says, I'll be with you, trust him. It's not complex. Very rarely do I ever find myself in an intellectual crisis spiritually. It's always, it's always an obedience crisis. It's always a faith crisis. It's not complicated. God says do this and I don't want to. Or God says trust me and I don't want to. <laughs> God says I love you and I go, I don't believe it. It's not complicated. And sometimes, because we make it complicated, the Lord just has to pull us aside and just remind us how simple it is. Because when we love Jesus, we trust Jesus, we follow Jesus, it leads to loving others and obeying God, right? 
even when it puts you in the lion's den where David's going, even when it puts you in the lion's den, you're like, okay, all right, Lord, this will be interesting, but here we go. Now, as I said earlier, Saul's torment may have been eased by David, but this is not a permanent fix. There are still problems facing him, and the Lord is not with him. So in chapter 17, now we see another problem arise. It says, now the Philistines gathered themselves together, gathered their armies together uh, to battle, and they were gathered together at Shoko, which belongs to Judah, and they pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Now, when the Israel, Israel last fought the Philistines, if you remember, it was Saul's foolish oath that he told nobody they could eat anything until they'd killed every last Philistine. And that allowed the Philistines to escape, right? That allowed them to get away, even though Israel had them. And so while Saul was securing his kingdom, his borders, the Philistines had rebuilt their army, and now they finally got into a place where they said, it's time for us to regain the upper hand. And so they invade, and it says they gathered together Shoko. Shoko is a hill about 15 miles west of Bethlehem, uh, and this Israeli city of Shoko is right on the border of Philistine and Israeli land. So they have entered Israeli territory with this army, and after they take this city, this Israeli city, they pitch between that city, which is Shoko's on a, a hill, and then Azekah, which is a, another hill. Um, when we were in the uh, Valley of Elah, um, you know, we point out those hills, and, you know, and that's Azekah, and that's this, that's where the Philistine armor was, and this is where David and Goliath fought. It's really cool. It, it's so neat. Um, there's a a stream that's not a stream anymore, um, but there's a, a brook that runs right through the valley of Elah, and it's just got these rocks everywhere. I, I, I brought a bag of them, and I, I actually keep them in my office anytime someone's facing a giant, and I, I give it to them. I say, that's, that's, that's a reminder that God's going to take care of your giant, just like he took care of Saul's and David's. You know, but, but I love it. You know, I brought a bunch of them. I, first time I went, I took some for me, and the second time I went, I thought, I should get some for others. And... Uh, this valley in Israel, um, it's, it's the perfect battlefield. And, and so uh, Saul, verse 2, and his men of Israel, they were gathered together and they pitched by the valley of Elah, the one I mentioned to you. And they set the battle in array against the Philistines. In other words, they um, arranged their soldiers in a line. So you got the Philistines in a line in this one valley in the distance, and then the Israelites in a line in the valley of Elah, and they're ready to face off against each other. Very similar if you've ever seen, you know, uh, you know battles like from the Revolutionary War in film or, or even the Civil War where they line up and fight. Uh, that's how this battle's going to take place. It's not going to be, this is not guerrilla warfare. This is not a bunch of, you know, troops chaotically running around. This is one line going to go hit another line, and we're going to find out who wins. Uh, and obviously in, in a situation like that, there's a lot of death. The death toll is high. Um, Israel had, and the Philistines, they have, uh, well, verse 3, and the Philistines stood on a mountain on the other, one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Um, Israel and the Philistines have been in this situation numerous times over the, the decades of their conflicts. And the outcome, interestingly enough, you know, as we know, always had to do with whether God was with Israel or God was not with Israel, right? If he was with them, they won. If he was not with them, they lost. So this time, the Philistines, they decide to bring out their own unique weapon to turn the tide in their favor. Verse 4, it says, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath. That's where he's from, one of these five Philistine royal cities. And then it tells us a little bit about this guy named Goliath. It says, Whose height was six cubits and a span, which is six and a half cubits, which is just under ten feet tall. 
And the word for champion, it means a man in the middle. That's what the, literally the word translates to, man in the middle. Someone who fills the gap alone between two armies. This would be the guy, if you needed to hold the line for a bit to get your men out, this is the guy you sent up to hold the line because he was one who could take on more than one man. Well, how is he so? Well, we see here he is just under 10 feet tall. It mentions in verse 5 that he had a helmet of brass upon his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. That's 140 pounds. I can't even imagine, I can't lift 140 pounds. I couldn't imagine fighting with 140 pounds of armor on top of me. But the idea that's being conveyed with the poundage is not just simply to show how strong he was, but it's to show you, you're not getting a hit in on this guy, you know? You're, you're not just getting through the armor. This is some thick stuff, this is, and this is a man who can carry that type of thick material around. It goes on to tell us even more. It says in verse 6 that he had greaves of brass upon his legs, so you can't sweep the leg. It says he had a target of brass between his shoulders. A target means a javelin or a spear. So that's his weapon of choice is going to be a weapon that has quite a bit of reach. And it mentions about the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Uh, a weaver's beam was what you, you know, a loom, you know, the, the massive loom they would use to you know, go back and forth to, you know, uh, weave things together. Most spears were, were slender, a normal spear shaft, but this is far wider and far thicker than a normal spear shaft. And then it tells us about the spear head, that the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 12 to 15 pounds. And not only that, but he's got a, a shield bearer coming out before him, you know, carrying his shield. He's going to have a shield too. So he's got this massive shield. It's not one of these little bucklers. He's got a big, huge shield. He's got armor everywhere that's impenetrable, you know, a helmet on his head. The only place that's available is probably his face. And, and then he's got this spear that's massive. And, and, and if you get hit with this thing, you're not getting up. So how are you going to face a man who's got that type of superior reach, superior strength? And if he hits you, you're done for. This isn't just an elite soldier. This is a complete force of nature. This is a massively strong human being with superior reach and skill to any Israeli that he would face. Now, there's always soldiers who are better than others, more skilled than others, maybe more, better equipped than others. And any single soldier can be overwhelmed in open battle. But that's not how the Philistines planned to employ Goliath. Look at verse 8. And he, Goliath, stood and cried unto the armies of the Philistines. Uh, I'm sorry, the armies. I'm sorry, I lost my spot. The armies of Israel. And he said unto them, why are you come out to set your battle in array? Uh, the, the phrase there, why, is actually two words. And it, it means like, uh, it's to what, which, which has the idea for what purpose or to what end. In other words, if we just line up and fight each other, a ton of people are going to die. I propose an alternate plan to solve our conflict. He says, am I not a Philistine, and aren't you not servants to Saul? Choose you out a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So his thought is, we'll just settle this in single combat. If I win, you serve us. If he wins, we'll serve you. Now, single combat challenges were not uncommon in warfare, 
But single combat never determined the outcome of a battle in ancient history. You won't find any records of that. And even when those stipulations were set up, oh, this will decide the battle, the two armies ended up fighting anyway, just like they will here. So what does this serve then? Since everybody knows this is a farce, everybody knows that this is not how it's going to go down, what purpose does it serve? Well, it serves this. Normally, you have your two greatest champions going at it. And losing your champion is a serious blow to morale. Very often, the, the, the army that wins a fight is it's not necessarily the army that may even be the better army, but it's the army that can just hold the line. And so, if an army's morale is bad and they begin to break, they begin to, to you know, lose their cohesion, um, even if they're better equipped, even if they superior, have superior training, they're going to get cut down. And so, this is a ruse meant to give the Philistines that kind of an advantage because what Israeli soldier is going to be able to defeat the Goliath in single combat? None. And so knowing this, Goliath closes his challenge by taunting Israel's army in verse 9 or 10. He says, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The word there, defy, means to ridicule, insult. I mock you. I, I, I insult you. I mean, I don't know if he said that or if he actually you know, said something insulting or mocking. But either way, he's insulting them, mocking them. Where's your champion? Come and fight me. And it says in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul's troubled again, right? Troubled again. He's afraid again. But now added to this is dismay, which means great discouragement. Why would he be greatly discouraged? Well, a challenge like this to Middle Eastern honor demands you answer the insult, demands you answer the challenge. But Saul knows there's no way sending someone out there against this guy is going to end well. There's no way he's going out there. He may be the champion. He might be the king, but he's not going out there because he knows the Lord's not with him. And he knows that's the only way somebody's going to beat this guy. And so he knows there's no way it can end well. And so he's thinking, what am I going to do now? If I delay too long, my own people might turn against me because they'll call me a coward, say I have no honor. And if I go out there, I'm a dead man. And that's what happens when you decide to go on your own like Saul did. The truth is, we might look at what the Lord says and we might be like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this and I can handle this. And frequently when we make that decision, it's because we think, well, I, I have a handle on this. You know, whatever might, the area of disobedience might be, it's because we think, well, no, no, this, this, I won't go the route that this can lead you to. I, I won't let this compromise take me down a further road, you know. I, I won't let that happen. I will control the situation. I will ensure that I'll, I'll be safe. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I don't make, you know, really bad decisions. And that way I can have what I want, and yet I won't experience the consequences that God warns me about. And so, the problem is, is that when we do that, maybe we might have some control of that situation, but eventually, we will end up in a situation where we're in over our head, like Saul is here. Now, walking with the Lord, we need to understand this. I mean, I know you guys know this, but walking with the Lord doesn't mean we won't have battles. In fact, walking with the Lord doesn't mean we won't find ourselves in situations where we're in over our head. We won't, walking with the Lord doesn't mean there'll be no Goliaths. But what walking with the Lord does mean 
is that we don't have to face those things on our own. That's the difference. And the truth is, God is bigger than any giant the enemy can throw our way. Amen? So, Saul's challenge is he doesn't have that. And when I'm walking my own path like this in disobedience, I don't have the Lord to fight those battles. And facing those situations on my own is always going to leave me with a troubled heart. (laughs) It's always going to do that. Now, we're not meant to live like that, right? I mean, is any of us equipped to live in life where we're constantly fearful, constantly troubled, you know, constantly worried? Is any of us, you know, meant to live like that? No, we're not designed that way. Our, 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 Our makeup, our soul is not designed to operate that way. It takes a toll. And so if we refuse to repent and we stay in that place, it will eventually destroy us. So my encouragement to you tonight, you know, as we wrap this up with, I want to go back to Psalm 37. My encouragement is let's not do that. (laughs) Let's do what Psalm 37 says instead. So let's turn there and we'll close with this as the worship team comes up. Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is is something I often read uh, to people who are struggling because there's some very important truths here that we need to know. So just kind of let the words minister to you. I don't know what you might be going through tonight. Maybe you're facing a Goliath. Maybe you need a stone. But Psalm 37, verse 1, says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the, the green herb. Doesn't that sound like a better way to approach it? Yeah, I mean, Saul was fretting because of an evildoer, Goliath, right? And he was envious. I mean, I'm sure that Saul's thinking, I wish I had what that guy had. I wish I was as tall as he was. I wish I had the reach that guy had. I wish I had, I had the strength to, to, to wear that armor and to hold that spear. And I, I, then I could take him. But instead, the Lord says, no, don't, don't look at it that way. Instead, do this. Verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shall you dwell in the land, and truly you will be fed. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What does Saul really want? I mean, what did he want above all else? He didn't want to have to worry anymore. He didn't want, he didn't, he didn't want any, anything to threaten the life that he had. God offered all of that. He, he offered him. They said, you know, Saul, I'll be with you. You know, he anointed him. He had led him into battle. The Lord had said, you know, Saul, I'll help you. Samuel had been by his side. Just trust me. Just obey me. Just do things my way, and I'll take care of all this. But instead of trusting in that, He didn't commit his way unto the Lord. He didn't do what verse 5 says. Commit your way, the path you're going to take. He said, I'm going to take a different path. I'm going to go my own path. No, the Lord says, commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him with that path, and he shall bring it to pass. Saul said, no, I'm going to bring it to pass on my own. Don't do that. Do this. Trust him to bring it to pass. Because then verse 6 says, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Don't fret yourself because of him who prospers in his way. You know, all those men were deserting Saul left and right while he's waiting for Samuel to come to the sacrifice. 
He says, don't fret because of that. These guys, they, yeah, they might be bailing on you. Don't fret. Rest. How can I rest? We're down to 600 men and the whole Philistine army's coming for me. Rest. You've got me on your side. You've got all the angels of heaven on your side. You don't even need three men, let alone 600 men. Rest. Don't fret yourself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to past. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't fret yourself in any way to do evil. Because evildoers will be cut off. Those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And for yet a little while, just a little while, we live so often, maybe you don't, I do, in the now. Now is bad. Now something must be done. He says, yeah, just a little while. Now is just a little while. For yet a little while, and the wicked won't even be. Yea, you shall diligently consider, search, look for his place. It shall not be. But the meek, meek, it means, it means like submitted strength, strength that isn't brought to bear. It means you could do something, but you don't. The meek shall inherit the earth. And here it is, the opposite of troubled, a troubled heart and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Isn't that a good promise? Let's all stand. <clears throat> Lord, there's a lot of things there in Psalm 37, a lot of things you tell us to do, but we, we look at that ending, that result, where you say that we'll experience the abundance of peace. That is the opposite of what Saul was experiencing. So Lord, we don't want a troubled heart. We want a, a simple heart like David, a heart that's able to experience this peace as we don't fret, as we rest in you, commit our way to you, trust in you. And so, Lord, as, as my brothers and sisters might be out there right now, some of them saying, I'm going to do that, Lord. I'm going to trust you, or I'm going to cease from anger. I'm going to stop fretting. I'm going to rest in you. I commit this, this path that, you know, you want me to go down. I commit it to you. I'm going to go your way, Lord. Lord, as my brothers and sisters are doing that, would you flood them with your peace? Fill him with your spirit. Remind him that you're good. And give him rest. We love you and we thank you that you're good and your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen.